You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So for any of you who know me well, you know that my favorite pastime is fishing. Um, Other than talking about baseball, I like to fish. And so about a week and a half ago, I got up and I packed all my stuff in my truck. I put my kayak in my truck and strapped it down. And I was driving down to the coast to fish down to Freeport. And it was still dark, but I could see the sun coming up. And because it's the Advent season, I was listening to my favorite Christmas album, which is the Josh Garrels Christmas album, which you should listen to. Um, And as I was doing that, I started thinking about the incarnation, the fact that God came to dwell with man in the flesh and the person of Jesus. And I was driving and I began crying, thinking about this. And it's dark and I'm crying and driving and that's probably not safe. But I was so moved because the reality hit me once again that as Christians... We are a people who don't hope in just a set of rules or a list of spiritual truisms that we put our hope in, but we have hope because we have a God who in history enters in to redeem his people. And that is most clearly revealed in the incarnation, the fact that in the midst of his people striving, that God entered in through Jesus to provide salvation. And this morning, we are continuing in 1 Samuel. And we're continuing in a text where we've seen God enter into history on behalf of his people. If you weren't here this past week, we began our Advent sermon series. And in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, we enter into a historical context of Israel in the midst of unfaithfulness the priesthood and the judges that have been ruling over Israel are morally corrupt. Politically, there is the oppression of the Philistines surrounding Israel. And we find ourselves in 1 Samuel in a seemingly insignificant town focusing on an insignificant woman named Hannah. And Hannah is unable to bear children. And so her husband takes on another wife, and this wife bears many children, and then lords over Hannah with accusation and with all of this ridicule. And so Hannah is in the mires of shame and sorrow, but Hannah is described in the text as one of the faithful few in Israel. And so in the midst of her years and years of affliction and suffering, she goes to the God of the universe in humble but bold prayer and asks that he would give her a son. And if he does, Hannah says that she will devote this son to the service of God. And God grants her a son. And after a few years, Hannah weans this boy, Samuel, and takes him to the priest and offers him over to the service of the Lord as God has stepped into Hannah's history and moved for her redemption. She gives her son over to the Lord. And we pick up with her response there. 
after she has given her son over to Eli, this morally corrupt priest, that her son might be raised up in devotion to God, Hannah prays in chapter 2. And as we look at this prayer, it will be easy for us to say we're in the Advent season and we're saying that the, the Bible is the clearest way is to see the person and work of Jesus revealed, but why are we in an Old Testament text that talks about an insignificant woman giving birth to a son long before the time of Jesus? And so first we need to start with a rule for reading the Old Testament, and that is that there's always more than meets the eye. When we read the Old Testament, there is always more than what meets the eye. I think about if any of you have ever painted uh, painted walls in a home. If you walk into a house that has been painted, you would look at a wall and it would look like one layer of paint. But what you know, if you've ever painted, is that underneath the final product, there are layers and layers of paint so that the wall can look finished. And the Old Testament is much like that. On the surface, it could just look like a blank wall, but underneath are layers and layers of what God is doing to reveal himself to his people. If you're a note taker, we'll break the text up into three primary sections. Verses one through three, we will address God's individual salvation for Hannah. We'll call that the micro-salvation, this individual momentary experience of God's grace. In verses four through eight, we'll see Hannah talking about the character of God and how that affects the way that he saves. And in verses nine and 10, we'll see Hannah talking about the bigger picture of God's salvation, a corporate reality. No longer is it just about Hannah and is it just about this moment, but it's about all of God's people for all time, and so we'll call that the macro salvation. Let's read verses one through three. Of chapter two, in 1 Samuel, Hannah says this. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. We'll stop there. Hannah says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, and for a lot of that us, that sounds like weird, maybe just overly poetic language, and we'll see that term again in verse 10. Uh, when we see in, in the Bible a horn being exalted, this is victory language. Uh, if we think about a, a big buck, a big deer with these huge horns, the horns are the glory of the deer. And so when Hannah says that her horn is exalted, this is victory language, that she has been given honor by God. Victory in the power of God. We could think again um, to understand this language. We think back to the Astros winning the World Series and coming into Houston for the parade and music playing because horns are playing because there was victory in the land. The Astros have returned home victorious and so horns are playing. So Hannah is saying that in the Lord she has victory. She says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. 
Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In these verses, we see Hannah rejoicing in what God has specifically done for her. For years and years, Hannah was afflicted and sorrowful and full of shame. She had her husband's other wife making fun of her and ridiculing her and belittling her. She's surrounded by a priesthood that's morally corrupt, a people who are doing whatever they see right in their own eyes and abandoning the God that she knows is worthy of hoping in. And finally, she has relief. God has entered into the history of Hannah's life and given her the thing of her asking. And so now she knows that her enemies have nothing to lord over her. She knows that her husband's other wife has no reason to be proud because God has provided salvation for her. She goes on in verses 4 through 8. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him he has set the world. Hannah has moved from verses one through three when she is saying, Look at what you have done for me, God. With your holiness being the bedrock of this action, you have provided me relief to saying in verses four through eight, you've done this for me because that's just the kind of God that you are. Hannah knew that the Lord had made a habit in the history of his people of opening the wombs of barren women so that they might bear children. She knows the story of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and how their sons were so integral in God working his covenant relationship with his people. She knows that God has all throughout history looking at his, looked at his lowly and faithful ones and exalted them. He al she also knows that God has throughout history looked at the proud and those who rely on their own strength and accomplishments and brought them low. So Hannah is saying, God, you've done this because that's just the kind of God that you are. Hear this, church. The kind of God that we have is the kind of God who looks at the afflicted and the lowly and the hopeless and exalts them, and gives them victory. So this morning, some of you have walked in the room, and for years and years and years, you've been afflicted with physical or mental unwellness. Look to the Lord. He's just the kind of God who would grant you relief. 
Many of you have come in this morning and for years and years and years have continued to return to the same sin over and over and over. And you've tried this and this and this and you have an accountability partner and you've read these books, but you still haven't yet fallen down before the Lord and asked him to remove it from you because he's just the kind of God who will do that. And Hannah knows that well. Many of you have relationships that for years and years and years have been marked by affliction and sorrow and strife and jealousy and unforgiveness. And you've relied on yourself to try to make that work or you in your arrogance have turned away from those relationships without looking to the Lord who that is just the kind of thing that he would love to heal. That is what Hannah is saying is, look at what God has done for me. And he's done it just because that's the way he is. He's just that kind of God. In verses 9 and 10, Hannah moves on. And she talks more about this God who saves his lowly and faithful one. She talks more about, not about what he's done for her and not just about the kind of God he is, but she goes on to say that because you've done this for me and because I know this is the kind of God you are, I have full confidence that this is what you will do. She says in verse 9 and 10, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. Not by might shall man prevail. It will not be the strong who are victorious, Hannah says. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah has transitioned from look at what God has done for me to because that is the kind of God he is and now she has said and hear what he is going to do. Hannah knows that God's faithfulness to one person in one moment is always more than just that. She understands that she is looking at a freshly painted wall with layers underneath but she also knows that that wall is just one of many in a palace that God is restoring. Verse 10, Hannah talks about judgment and a king. And she uses the same victorious language of a horn being exalted, this king's horn being exalted. But church, at the time that Hannah prayed this, Israel had never had a king. There was no king to be exalted in Israel. So what is she talking about? We'll go back to verse 5. We'll see something else that is really interesting. She says, the barren has borne seven. 
if we continue reading in chapter 2, we'll see that Hannah only will have six children. And it seems when she says that the barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn, that she's talking directly about her situation. She's saying, I've born seven when I was barren, and, and now my husband's other wife will be forlorn. But Hannah didn't have seven children. She only had six. There's a missing one yet to come. And there's a few different ways we can look at this. First, all throughout the Bible, the number seven is a number that represents completion and perfection. So in a sense, Hannah is saying, what God has done for me is not yet the complete work of what God is going to do. What he's done for me is just part of what he's going to do, but there's more to come. There is another barren womb that the Lord has yet to open. We could look at it as a specific child yet to be born. A specific child that would be born of a barren woman. And I think both of those are the right application. I think there is no mistaking the fact that Hannah has six and seven is the number of completion. And I think there is also no mistaking that there is a specific child yet to come. First, let's look at Hannah's situation. In the midst of generation after generation of Israel walking in unfaithfulness and more and more people losing their hope in the promises that God has given them. God opens the womb of Hannah and gives her a son, Samuel. And Samuel will be the prophet who will pave the way for Israel to have kings. He will pave the way for the king that Israel chooses. His name will be Saul and he will give way to King David. But, Israel is the king, but Saul is the king that Israel wanted. But Saul's a bad king. But if we fast forward 400, 500 years, we'll find ourselves in Luke chapter 1. And we'll see another barren woman. Her name is Elizabeth. It says in verse 5 of chapter 1 in Luke, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. At the time of Elizabeth, it had been over 400 years since the prophets had last spoken to Israel. And so generation after generation of God's people grew up hearing these stories of what God had promised to do. And with every generation, don't you think they thought that's probably just an old tale? Much like in the time of Hannah, in the time of Elizabeth, Israel is surrounded by the political and military oppression of Rome like the Philistines in Hannah's day. 
in the time of Elizabeth, much like the time of Hannah, the priesthood of Israel had fallen prey to corruption. But there were a faithful few. One was Elizabeth, and God saw it fit to open her womb. And she gave birth to a son. And his, his name would be John. And we know him as John the Baptist, and he served the role, much like Samuel, of being the prophet who would preach repentance, preparing the way for a coming king. But this king is not the one that the people wanted. Saul was the king that the people of Israel desperately wanted, and he was a bad king. But John came out of the womb of a barren woman, preparing the way for a king that nobody wanted. Oh, but church, he's a good king. We call him the Lord, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So when Hannah is praying about a future king who would be exalted, who would be victorious, a future king who would judge the ends of the earth, when she says that it is not by might that men prevail, she's not just thinking about her current situation. See, in Jesus' rule as king, all of the fullness of what Hannah was saying comes to fruition. Hannah experienced a momentary individual salvation as God granted her the son of her asking. But in Jesus, salvation is made fully available to all who would hope in him. Just as Hannah was lowly and faithful, so and was granted salvation, so will any be who are lowly and faithful before God, hoping in Christ. Hannah said that might is not the way that men will prevail in this coming kingdom. And we see that fully in our King Jesus. Jesus was not a mighty, mighty warrior, but he was a meek and lowly prophet. Jesus did not establish a military reign that would overthrow the rule of Rome over the nation of Israel. Rather, Rome arrested him, put him on trial, beat him, accused him, mocked him, and killed him that he might have his horn exalted in the Lord. Jesus is the king that Hannah is talking about, and his kingdom has arrived. But it is not yet fully established. If we think about our context today, we will see shocking similarities between that of Hannah's and Elizabeth's, as once again we find ourselves many, many years since God had last revealed himself in his word. It's been 2,000 years since the true revelation of God has come forth. And unfaithfulness abounds inside and outside the church as people proclaim that power and productivity are the way to salvation and to joy. 
but there are a faithful few. There are those who in lowly faithfulness go and pray boldly and humbly before the Lord that salvation might come and to those salvation is given. Much like Samuel had the role of preparing the way for King Saul and David by proclaiming God's goodness and his mercy and proclaiming that people ought to repent and turn toward him. Much like John the Baptist had the role of preparing the way for King Jesus by proclaiming God's goodness and mercy toward them and that they should repent and turn toward God, so does the church have that job today. Because our king is yet to return, but he will return. And we have the wonderful opportunity of stepping into this prophetic role of proclaiming that he is returning and that God is good and faithful and merciful and just. And if you would just put your hope in him when he returns. Not only will his horn be exalted, but yours will as well. See, God's seemingly insignificant work in the life of Hannah or in the life of Elizabeth or in your life is all part of so much more. It's a reminder that God is just the kind of God who saves. It's just the way that he is. We have a God who enters into history in big ways and small ways to make himself known and to exalt those who are lowly and who put their hope in him. The question becomes, are you lowly? Do you hope in him? Or do you rely on your own strength, your own position, your own authority? Do you rely on your resume and list of accomplishments? Do you think that if you grit your teeth hard enough and stay up late enough into the hours of the night working that your problems will be solved? Do you look to yourself to rid yourself of sin and shame? Or do you fall before the throne of a good king who is strengthened by God, as Hannah says? that he might do it for you. God has entered into history time and time again to redeem and to exalt his people, and he's not yet finished. Our king is returning, and Hannah tells us that he is returning to judge the ends of the earth, and that is terrifying. It is terrifying for those who are proud. It is terrifying for those who rely on their own strength. It is terrifying who rely for all those who rely on their own list of accomplishments, but for all who hope in him. For all who lay down their own might and their own accomplishments and trust in the king who has removed their guilt and shame for them, who has removed and taken upon their sorrow for them, those faithful ones he will exalt. That's the good news. 
That's the good news because that's just the sort of God that we have, church. Won't you trust in him this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we have nothing to offer you except worship. We have nothing to bring before you that you would be impressed with us. Many of us in the room have been afflicted for years by sin or shame or broken relationships, sickness. God, would you come and heal us? Even in the small ways, would you grant us little pictures of your salvation that we might see them as a down payment of your future return? God, I pray that this church would be a faithful church in the midst of many unfaithful ones. That we would boldly and faithfully and humbly prepare the way for your return and oh Lord, would you come quickly. Sustain us this morning in your grace, not in our works. Remind us of that as we come to the table.